It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Access to HIV medications has been severely disrupted by COVID-19. What can countries do to keep treatment going to those who need it? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show, hydrogen power has had many false starts. Could it now be about to take off? If all of these potential uses came true, then we get a hydrogen economy, which is what uh, fans of the fuel have been hoping for for the past 50 years. And... As we change the state of technology, how does it change us? We have a lot of technologies that are on the horizon that will shape us, and we want to make sure that they shape us in the way that's best for all of humanity. First up, COVID-19 has dominated the attention of health professionals since its outbreak. But with all eyes on the coronavirus pandemic, efforts to fight older enemies like tuberculosis, malaria, and HIV-AIDS have been hampered, threatening the lives of millions. At the end of 2019, there were 38 million people living with HIV, and almost 2 million new infections happened that year. Nearly 700,000 people died. Now, more than 70 countries have raised the alarm that they risk running out of HIV medication because of the disruptions from COVID-19. These warnings come as leading researchers, doctors, and activists gather, virtually of course, for the International AIDS Society's biannual conference this week. The Director General of the World Health Organization has urged that we cannot let the COVID-19 pandemic undo the hard-won gains in the global response to the disease. We at WHO are deeply concerned about the impact of antiretrovirals during this time of the COVID pandemic. Meg Doherty oversees global HIV policy at the World Health Organization. We have antiretrovirals that are being developed and and made, but they are difficulty getting them around to where they need to be um, because the countries are closed down and or flights are delayed. But more often now we're hearing that uh, even clinics are being um, closed down and people are not able to access their antiretrovirals at the clinic sites as well. What impact can this have on the progress made against HIV AIDS? WHO, UNAIDS, with a set of five very well-established and experienced modelers looked at a modeling scenario, which is essentially the worst case scenario, that if these antiretrovirals are interrupted for a six-month period of time, we could have an excess of 500,000 deaths in sub-Saharan Africa. And if they were interrupted for less time, say 50% or 20%, we would continue to see in excess deaths, but relatively fewer deaths that would be uh, attributable to the lockdown of ARVs. 
And I think this year we're starting to see that even before the COVID pandemic, that we're going to have to step up our efforts to be able to continue to have the great progress that we've seen before in terms of reducing new infections and reducing the deaths related to HIV. Let's look at that a little bit more closely. What needs to happen to stop the short-term crisis from jeopardizing our long-term public health goals? I think we have to think very creatively right now and give good guidance to countries about how to think about what we call build back better or sort of we get into this mode of panic, big response, we must address the the pandemic, but we neglect the other diseases and we neglect the health systems. Those of us who represent the health system and systems like HIV and TB, we need to ensure that we're working with those who are leading on the COVID efforts to work on an integrated view on how we can do this together. How many laboratory systems are devoted to COVID and when can they start to come back on for HIV? How can we share the resources at the same time, use opportunities if they're going door to door for COVID or testing, add in a TB test, add in an HIV test. See if that's a way that we can do this in an integrated way that actually shows us at the base, there's primary health care, which is essentially the base of universal health coverage. Obviously, COVID has taken away a lot of the attention from these other diseases, notably HIV AIDS. What are the positives that have come out of the conference this week that would have been headline news if not for the coronavirus? Some of these news pieces are still getting a headline. For example, the AIDS 2020, there is a new study that has shown long-acting cabotegravir injectable ARV for PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis for prevention of HIV infection. And this is a great new tool in our toolbox to prevent HIV. We have known for many years that if people take antiretrovirals during periods of time of high-risk sex, that they can prevent HIV acquisition. And this just gives another choice of an injectable option that has been now proven superior compared to already very effective oral tenofovir. And this appears to work in men and transgender women. We are excited to know that there will be another trial that will soon report out for using this injectable PrEP, let's say, in women as well. So we'd like to be able to see that it's effective both in men and in women. Other important findings for WHO in particular, we've recommended using dolutegravir as first line for adults, women, adolescents. There's a new dosing for pediatric um, dolutegravir that can be used down to four weeks of age. So that's a very important piece of news where we have a better drug for infants and children. And it's also going to be safe to use um, in pregnant women, whereas before we were concerned about some of the safety. The final question I have for you is HIV still is no vaccine. There's still no routine cure, but there has been a lot of progress. Something happening in Sao Paulo. Yes, there is a, a team from Brazil that have noted that they have at least one patient who has been shown to have what we call this functional cure 
by using two drugs that really do look to try to get the HIV out of its reservoir and then help to kill HIV over time or suppress it over time with, uh, without having to use the antiretrovirals. And so there is movement in the cure uh, arena to find out how we can eventually start to have people live with uh, HIV over a longer period of time without necessarily having to take medications daily. And if we can figure that one out, then I think it will be uh, quite an advance for our HIV epidemic. Meg Doherty, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. To hear about how the lessons from the HIV AIDS pandemic have informed the African response to COVID-19, you can listen to our daily current affairs show, The Intelligence, on Friday. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Next up. A small travel for for a better future. The South Korean superboy band BTS has teamed up with Hyundai, a car maker, on a new viral jingle. It goes like this. Positive energy from a drop of water. Excuse me. They're referring to hydrogen power technology, which after many years of slow development may now be on the path to deployment. Conventional wisdom has been that battery-powered cars are the future of motoring. Hyundai sells those as well, but it is hedging its low-carbon bets by developing and singing about the potential of hydrogen fuel cells. They're a way to generate electricity directly. So rather than storing energy that you gather from the mains like a battery might, fuel cell generates electricity from a, a sort of controlled chemical reaction between hydrogen and oxygen. Tim Cross is our technology editor. You get the oxygen from the air, the hydrogen, you know, often compressed, is stored uh, in a tank. And unlike a battery, you get exhaust out of a fuel cell, but the exhaust is just the reaction product of hydrogen and oxygen, which of course is water. And it's not just Hyundai getting excited about the potential of hydrogen. So hydrogen's going through a bit of a purple patch at the moment. So we've had Toyota, who make the Prius, you know, which is the world's best-selling battery hybrid vehicle. They announced a joint venture with some Chinese car makers to develop hydrogen fuel cells. People are talking about using you know, fuel cells to power buses or lorries or ships or even maybe aeroplanes. People are saying, well, hey, why don't we use hydrogen to do heating instead of natural gas? If all of these potential uses came true, then we get a hydrogen economy, which is what uh, fans of the fuel have been hoping for for the past 50 years. Hydrogen in itself poses several obstacles. One is flammability. Hydrogen is highly explosive. And when it's compressed, as it usually is in a fuel cell, it is even more risky. If you want to implement hydrogen at scale, you need to find a reliable, a safe, and a cost-effective way to store it for long duration. Dr. Ines Abu Hamed is the co-founder and CEO of H2Go Power. 
The reason that we want to avoid compression is because we want to bring hydrogen technologies closer to the user. H2Go Power is focusing all its effort on addressing the storage question. How does that work? What is the alternative? Our technology replaces the need in compressing hydrogen to store it under 300 bars or 700 bars by converting it in a chemical process into solid state or liquid state. And when we know that the demand is at peak, we reconvert the hydrogen that is stored in a solid state form or liquid state form back into gas that is ready to be converted using a fuel cell at the other end. So how is H2GO applying that technology to practical use? H2GO Power is working on two products, power for drones, so increasing energy stored per unit weight and volume to power drones for around three times longer than typical lithium-ion batteries. And the second product is energy stored for long duration in the form of hydrogen. This basically could be a power-to-power solution whereby renewable energy is captured for as long as needed in the form of hydrogen and only when the demand of the user at the other end peaks, then hydrogen is converted back to power. So Tim, there's clearly a lot of experimental development going on in hydrogen power and a lot of optimism, but this is not the first time that hydrogen has had a big buzz about it, is it? No, the joke is, you know, hydrogen is the fuel of the future and always will be, or that we have one of these sort of mini boomlets every 10 years and they they never go anywhere. There are big drawbacks to using hydrogen. You know, one of them is if you're going to change over the world's fossil fuel infrastructure, that's a huge job. But I think maybe the most fundamental drawback is, you know, hydrogen advocates like to say, hey, it's the most abundant element in the universe, which it is if you're an astronomer and you're looking at the universe as a whole. But on Earth, hydrogen's actually pretty rare, at least in its its elemental form. So you can either make it by pulling it out of fossil fuels, or you can make it by running an electric current through water and splitting it into hydrogen and oxygen. Both of those things, of course, need electricity to run. And that means it's inherently kind of inefficient. And of course, less efficient means more expensive. Okay, so a lot of this hinges on the ability to make hydrogen at scale. How is that currently done and are we good enough at it? Yes, that's right. So there are two ways to make hydrogen. And at the moment, we extract it from fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are hydrocarbons. You just you take the carbons away and you're left with hydrogen. The process called steam reformation is, is the most common one. The problem is you then have all the carbon to deal with. That ends up as carbon dioxide and you emit seven tons of carbon dioxide or maybe even more for every ton of hydrogen. So if we're going to use hydrogen to bring about some kind of, of green economy, that's obviously not ideal. So there are two ways that people think this might work in the future. So the first is called blue hydrogen. And that's basically the same old steam reformation process. You just bolt on another technology called carbon capture and storage, where you you take the carbon emissions and you do something with them. Maybe you bury them underground. The other option is called green hydrogen, and that's the electrolysis process I mentioned, where you just get a big tub of water, stick two electrodes in, run a current through them, and you get two gases, hydrogen and oxygen. So you ignore the oxygen and gather the hydrogen. If you power that with renewable electricity or, or low carbon electricity, then it doesn't create any greenhouse gases. So most people think that you know green hydrogen probably, if we're to have hydrogen in our economy, it will be made in that way. So what are the large-scale commercial uses that you see as the most promising? 
both in terms of cutting the carbon impact as well as cost effectiveness? I think the places where hydrogen might find a role are the places where, for whatever reason, you can't use electricity directly, which is just simpler, probably less costly and more efficient. One of those, for instance, if you look at transport, the consensus seems to be that, you know, hydrogen cars are, are probably on a on a hiding to nothing because they just they just can't compete with the efficiency of battery ones. But as you start to, to talk about bigger forms of transport, so, you know, trucks and lorries, maybe it, its other advantages maybe start to outweigh the inefficiency. And the big one there is its its energy density. So batteries take up a lot of room to provide not very much energy. Hydrogen is not quite as good as fossil fuels when it comes to that, but it's, it's a lot better than batteries are. So there are several companies looking at uh, whether hydrogen lorries make more sense than, than sort of battery electric ones. If you then go bigger again, so shipping, which accounts for about two and a half percent of the world's greenhouse gas emissions, there's no kind of obvious technological silver bullet to decarbonize shipping. You can't use batteries because, you know, the ships just have to go, particularly if you're talking about you know, ocean going cargo ships, they just don't give you enough energy. And it's not like you can stop and plug your ship into shore every few hundred miles. So there's some suggestion that hydrogen might find a use there. And then like, the last big one, I think, is industrial processes. So some of these just require hydrogen anyway. Like, like if, if you're making artificial fertilizer, you need hydrogen to do that. The hydrogen at the moment comes from fossil fuels. You know, it seems like a, a pretty clear win if we could make that hydrogen from green sources instead. OK, so, Tim, how convinced are you by this positive energy? Could hydrogen be poised to become a significant part of the energy mix? Well, I don't want to stick my neck out too much. I mean, like I said, we've seen false dawns before. I do think the economics are pointing in an encouraging direction. I don't think we'll ever get the full-on hydrogen economy that people have been talking about for half a century. I think that electrification, just using electricity to power things, is much better wherever you can do it. So I think maybe for me, the way to think about hydrogen is to refer back to another famous ad campaign and say that it might be the sort of Heineken of green energy in that it might be able to refresh the parts of the economy that electrification can't reach. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And our thanks to Ines Abuhamad. And finally... Science and technology has changed humanity throughout the ages. The telegraph, the railroad, instant photography, the mobile phone. But although we change technology, our technologies also change us. Dr. Anissa Ramirez is a material scientist and a self-declared science evangelist. In her new book, The Alchemy of Us, she explores some of the hidden ways that our technical creations have subtly but powerfully transformed how we live, act, and think. It's very crucial that we think about it because we have a lot of technologies that are on the horizon that will shape us, and we want to make sure that they shape us in the way that's best for all of humanity. So it may be a simple premise, but we don't think about it and we certainly don't discuss it. Before we look in the past, which your book does, let's look into the future since you raised it. What are these future things that you're concerned about? Well, what's in the news cycle quite a bit is artificial intelligence and face recognition software and, and things like that. And, and the Internet of Things, all those things are on the horizon, fast approaching. And as I say in The Alchemy of Us, I talk about how technology has shaped us. And so in that discussion, besides talking about how great these technologies are, we should also be asking, okay, now that this will be part of our lives, how will it shape us? Okay, so with this as a base, now let's look into the book and let's look into the past. 
you make this claim that we're being so shaped by technology and you come up with a lot of very interesting stories, some of which are kind of haunting. Let's go right into it. Polaroid. Yeah. Well, the Polaroid story was surprising to me. I love Polaroid's instant camera. It was one of my favorite cameras that my grandfather owned. But what I found out that while I was standing in front of a camera that I loved, there were people who were standing in front of a camera made by Polaroid who weren't too happy about it. It's because Polaroid was used by the South African government uh, during the time of apartheid. All black South Africans were required by law to carry with them a passbook, which told people where they could go, where they could not go. At the heart of the passbook was a picture made by Polaroid. So this was a technology that was buttressing a very oppressive governmental system. And how do you think it actually changed us rather than it was misused? Polaroid was informed about the use of this technology, and they ignored it. And so the chapter from The Alchemy of Us is called Capture. And what I try and discuss is that this film, uh, its misuse, captured the value of what people thought was important. It captured what corporations believed was important. Sure, there are people being oppressed, but look, we're making some money. So that's what's of value to us. So the film was also capturing what was the value of the time, not only the images of the people who are in front of the lenses. Now, this is commingled with other things like artificial light to change us. The light bulb has disrupted our sleep patterns. Tell us more. That's absolutely correct. It ends up that before the Industrial Revolution, our ancestors used to sleep differently. They used to sleep in two intervals. They would go to bed around 9 or 10 o'clock and sleep for about three and a half hours. Then they would wake up on purpose and stay up for about an hour or so. And then they would go back to sleep for three and a half hours. This was changed by two inventions, the clock and also artificial lights, the, the light bulb. Because of the light bulb, we would go to bed later. So one of those segments of sleep would be truncated. And because of the clock, we need to get up earlier to go to the factory. So the second segment would be truncated. Soon it didn't make sense to consolidate those doses of sleep, and it resembles the type of sleep that we have today. Now, your day job is as a material scientist, when you're not trying to muscle in my action as a writer, <laughs> the materials that we use, the actual physical materials, shape ourselves as well, and who we become as a society. An example that I'm leading to is how we're closer together than ever before because of steel. Well, yeah. I mean, steel is a fantastic invention. Most people ignore it because they're riding on it in, in the railroads and, and not thinking about how that material came to be. But before steel rails, time and space were very different to us. Traveling 50 miles was something that was aspirational. If someone lived 50 miles away your chances of seeing them was very, very slim because you would travel by stagecoach. However, once the rails became popular, 50 miles was no big deal. The world shrank. Culturally, it changed us. But it also, because it was a very robust and strong material, it made it possible for us to build this infrastructure so that information and products and people could travel all over the country. And that enmeshed us. That made us become this whole unified entity as opposed to before steel, where we were just very separate pockets, separate from each other. Okay. I'm with you that our technologies shape us. What does this all mean? What is the deeper point here? What do we need to really know to understand? What's the warning in your book? Well, my premise is that technologies shape us. And I wrote The Alchemy of Us as a gymnasium, if you will, 
so that we can look at older technologies that are simpler and seem fairly innocuous and show in eight cases how they've changed us. And my hope is that we feel empowered and emboldened to ask questions about future technologies. Right now, there's a lot of technologies that are out there that are going to shape us, and maybe people don't feel that they have enough information to ask questions, or they feel afraid. I'm giving them the opportunity to exercise that critical thinking muscle so that they will feel empowered to ask questions, because that's the whole point of science to asking questions, and I want people to feel empowered to do so. So right now, amid a global pandemic, society as we know it is being rewritten by a pathogen less than a micron in size. Mm-hmm. So as the world adopts to this new normal, what technology would you like to see invented to shape the next normal? Technology hasn't really helped us all that much, except in connecting with Zoom and all these different technologies that allowed us to connect. But it hasn't solved how we go about in mitigating this disease. Um, we're using technologies that we've used in the 19th century and the 20th century. Look, we have to separate from each other. We kind of just wait it out. And we have some medicines that are also newer technologies. So I'm not really sure what we're going to gain, but I do think that it will be a combination of old technologies and new technologies in this new normal, because we can see that technology is not going to solve all of our problems. And what scares you? What scares me is that we are in the midst of this pandemic. We're getting a lot of information about how this new world will be. And I don't think people are really adhering to that. They really want to go back. And going back didn't work for everyone. That's what we've learned through all of this upheaval. The good old days wasn't good for everyone. So I'm a little concerned that there's going to be this friction between what the new normal should be and going back to the old normal. And I'm not certain about uh, what's going to win. Anissa Ramirez, thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. For more great science and technology stories, subscribe to The Economist. To get the best introductory offer wherever you are in the world, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the show notes. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.